Hello and welcome to the Performance Through Health podcast, a podcast dedicated to you guys and for myself to learn about all things health, mindset, relationships, and leadership. And if you missed out on last week's episode, I would go back and have a listen to episode eight with Joe Davis. He is a uh, owner and online coach with Proper Fitness Academy, and we had an excellent one-hour, 15-minute talk, all things fitness, psychology, uh, trauma, uh, this our journeys into into the fitness world, and, and we discussed all about his, his online coaching uh, academy as well. So it was a it was a great chat. It was my first guest, so it was really a pleasure to have him over on the uh, on the show. Have him have him over uh, to my place, and uh, he really seemed to enjoy it as well. So um, anyway, episode nine of the Performance Through Health podcast. Here we go. This is today. We're going to take you through um, a bit of an experience that I had last week with a coach called Brandon Foley, who is an awesome guy, a a, a friend of mine, who I, I basically again another person I've met through through social media content, and he's some of his content um, over at Move to Coaching. If you go and check out my uh, Instagram, Martin McPhillamy. And uh, have a look through my my followers and go find him. We have very similar outlooks in terms of in terms of approaching coaching and and fitness. And he, he goes back to stripping back to uh, your limiting beliefs and have a look at your limiting beliefs and changing your beliefs so you can change your behavior and your habits that can form, uh, I guess, rituals so that then you can and start implementing uh, you know, massive dramatic changes in your life so that you can become the person who you want to be to get where you want to go. So. My whole concept of performance through health and the, I guess, the psychology behind all sort of stuff is, is very similar to Brendan's. And um, I actually went and spent um, oh, half a day or, or most of a day last uh, Sunday, uh, go for a little bit of a workshop that he's practicing to put out into in, into the into the public, and it was awesome. Uh, you know, we we started off with um, a bit of a breakdown of the day of what we're going to do, and then we went into a, a, a bit of a uh, I, I guess a challenging start. So, for those of you who uh, are not regular listeners or don't know me, I live in Western Australia in Perth, and currently at the moment, the, the, the degrees of temperature here is anywhere between 35 and 40 degrees Celsius. So, it's very warm. It's not like we get uh, winters like we do over in, in England, you know, where we get negative, negative numbers and we get really low numbers, we get really cold. So, the people over here. In my experience, I've found that they're quite scared of the cold. And so an ice bath, which is something that we would regularly do in the rugby team, um, post, post, post rugby games, or I would regularly do at home, uh, just took a bit of ice in a bath and you know, put it up for a bit of recovery. Over here, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. And I can see where they come from. And there's a lot of, I guess, science behind it. So in life, we have... Uh, our ability to perform under under stressful situations. So let's say you're in a business meeting, or you've got a uh, a big proposal or a big pitch coming up, and you and you get yourself wound up and you get yourself stressed. Have you ever noticed that you you're not able to be able to to think properly? You're not you you're not you don't have the the clarity, or uh, or you're not able able to articulate yourself articulate yourself as well because of Funny that I couldn't say that the first time. Actually, laughing at myself, you can't articulate yourself because of the the stressful stressful state you're in. You you know you you're not be able to. It's hard to then calm yourself down. Now, what these uh, ice baths do, 
is they particularly allow you to control your nervous system. So when we step into a, a you know a cold water or a cold bath or jump into the cold bath, our breath gets taken away. It's almost like we have to take that gasp. Now that's a mammalian uh, response mechanism to to the cold, and it's almost like this stress response. So we get the uh, an activation of this sympathetic nervous system, release of uh, um, uh, catecholamines such as uh, noradrenaline. Uh, and adrenaline and uh, norepinephrine, if you want, if you if you if you if you're American, and that sends a strict signal to the body that they were in a stressful situation to get out and uh, you know get out of the water because it's, it could be could be threatening. Now, the challenge is is to to basically control your breath. Now, before you do it, we did something called uh, the, the the breath of fire. So it's thirty uh, breaths of hyperventilation, continuous hyperventilation. 30 breaths, blowing all the way out, holding your breath, and then just slowly stepping into this, uh, uh, you know, bath that's a bit of a, I guess it's a small paddling pool full of water and probably about 15 to 20 ice bags chucked in there. And as you submerge yourself, you just got to relax and just allow your, uh, you, you just control, continue, continue to control your breathing because what's going to happen is your body is going to want to make this response and start to hyperventilate. Now, if you're able to control your breathing and stay relaxed, it's almost like you're controlling your nervous system per se. You're getting the, the parasympathetic nervous system is, is being activated. So if you can control your breathing, you control that nervous system in a stressful situation such as an ice bath, that then transitions over into situations such as, you know, the uh, say, for example, you might have performance anxiety because you're an athlete or you're going into a competition because you're a powerlifter or you, you know, you're a dancer or you're, just, you're someone who's a, a, a teacher or a, a presenter. And you want to go in a calm state because you want to be able to recall all those uh, uh, memories that you have and you want to be able to recall all that information that you have in your brain. And if when we're in this uh, sympathetic state, which is the, the fight or flight or freeze state, the body is 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 not um, it's not made to, for for cognitive function. It's made for physical of getting away and escaping. Whereas the parasympathetic nervous system is more intuitive and creative, so it allows you to flow easy and be more present. So what the actual breath work and controlling that breath is, it's actually bringing unconscious into the conscious. So by Obviously, the breathing itself is a is a unconscious process. It's not something that we focus on all day, but by focusing on that breath, it actually brings the uh, the unconscious into the conscious. So therefore, we actually bring the parasympathetic nervous system into consciousness, and we're able to control it. So if you look at the likes of Wim Hof, for example, he's changed the, uh, you know, the literature and the science books because he now has, has changed things to say that humans can control their autonomic nervous system, and by that we can actually improve our immunity. And there's lots of other benefits of, of having this cold exposure, and that's you know increasing your uh, your your cold shock proteins, which increases your uh, your immune system. You can get recovery from um, uh, the microtrays. You get a vasoconstriction, vasodilation of blood blood vessels, so you're you're flushing out like lymphatic uh, waste. Um, so it's good for recovery. However, there is evidence to suggest that having continuous exposure to cold baths is actually detrimental to protein synthesis. So for those people out there who are looking to be strength athletes or bodybuilders or powerlifters, I wouldn't expose yourself too much to um, cold therapy post-workout because it actually it decreases protein synthesis uh, that we require for muscular growth and repair. 
So then when uh, moving on throughout the day, uh, we then did some uh, business build out workouts. So we did some goal setting and some uh, vision forming of what we would like over the next two years. And, and Brendan, Brendan took us through some some really nice examples and got, got the got the group involved uh, as, as, as much as he could, got them talking, got them active. You know, it's, it's, always, it's always very difficult when you're in a, you're a coach, you're, you're, you're in a, a facilitating a, a group and if they're not wanting to contribute, obviously it just makes it go very boring and very, but it's over very fast. And when you can facilitate groups and you can get people to share, um, that makes it much more interesting, makes it much more vulnerable and open and people get a better experience from it because it allows you to, uh, I, I guess, be be more open and trusting to, towards the facilitator so they can do their best work for, for you. So I went along, um, not only to learn from Brendan, because Brendan is he's, he's, he's a lot more senior than I am, he's been doing coaching for longer than I am, and he's, 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 he, he even said he's, he loves learning and he loves teaching. So to, to go and learn from him was a, a great experience, but my main thing was to see how he facilitates these sort of events, because I do want to do some workshops myself in the future. Um, and it was probably to give me a bit of confidence that you know people can do it, and maybe I'll, I'll go down to Total Movement in Subiaco once and and and, and uh, catch the um, the guys there and 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 do some uh, workshops with them as well in terms of stress or sleep. Um, but anyway, I thought that Brendan did a really good job at facilitating it. He got people managed to open up. I went down there and I was very open to try and help uh, everyone else be a bit engaging. And um, one of the, the more pronounced experiences that we had was the first time that I've ever done a, a form of cathartic breath work. Now, before I go into what that actually is, um, let me just say, so what we, psychological wise throughout our early years, so between the age of basically zero and seven, we are essentially in this state of hypnotism where we're just kind of, um, we're just absorbing everything from, from the world. And it only takes the smallest of, uh, instances from our uh, from our parents for example between that age to to really damage us in a way or word damage because sorry we're not damaged but it, it can be traumatizing or a large emotional experience can be it can can shape us in a way and that's where limiting beliefs come from and no one parent can stop it no 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 it's not their fault it's just uh, it's just what happens to humans it's the, it's, it's why we're we're self-conscious it's it's just a, a part of our nature and it's why we, we we've been able to survive because we stop when there's fear we stop when there's a limitation but in today's society we're not being ch- raced, uh, chased around by predators and we're not having to or for the most of us are not just in the survival mode um we don't need to be there, but people do live on that edge still because of traumatic experiences uh, from when they're a child. So, for example, um, when I was over at William Whitecloud's uh, training and we went through a bit of a meditation, I had uh, this limiting belief that I always have had a limiting belief that I'm not good enough. So what, it, what I've always done is it makes me a bit of an achiever in terms of I've been very good at sports, I've been very good at schools. Uh, education, anything that gets set to me, I'm very good. But when it comes to the point of trying to be the best, um, often I'll come up with an excuse for a reason why. And that's because I don't feel like I've been good enough. And it's been a bit of a cycle that's happened throughout my life. I can remember as a child, never wanting to really get in video games. As soon as I played and lost, I wouldn't play anymore because I'd feel embarrassed that I wasn't good at it. Um, in sports clubs, I'd probably jump from one club to the other because I'd get to a point where they'd be like, oh, you're an awesome player. But then I'd be like, okay, well, I've, now the pressure's on. I don't feel like I'm good enough. I'm, I'm a bit of a 
uh, imposter here, imposter here, and I'd leave and quit and go to a different sport and become good at that. And that continued throughout my life and spiraled throughout my life. Although, and you know, I would say that I'm reasonably successful. I'm happy with, with where I am. But I'm removing these limiting beliefs in me so that I can continue to go forward. Now, during this um, this breath work, which is cathartic, which basically is a, uh, a means to look look back within. So what it was, uh, the methodology itself was um, sustained hyperventilation, so harsh breathing throughout your, your mouth and your nose, um, breathing in and out cycles pretty um, uh, forcefully uh, without it stopping. So you're continuously doing that. Now this usually happens for about an hour or two, and um, we, we had about 45 minutes or 40 minutes to, to do this. Now, this sort of experience, uh, all the breath work that we do was called holotropic breath work. And this was created by, I think it was a Russian psychologist to uh, induce psych- uh, psychedelic states or transcendent, transcendent states and, and improve uh, awareness in, in the individual, which... For me, uh, if you said to me two years ago, or probably longer than that, three years ago, this sort of thing that it was was you, you could actually do this sort of thing, I would have I would laughed at you and been like, "What the hell are you on about?" I would have had no idea. But it's more of an Eastern uh, society's things, and you know, there's always been that connection to the breath and yoga and stuff like that. And now I'm starting to realize what it does. Now. We can't be uh, living in the future or the past when we're focused on the breathing. It means that we're completely present all the time. Okay. Now, with this holotrophic breath work, after about 10 minutes of ventilation, you start to get pins and needles. And that's obvious because you're offloading a lot of carbon dioxide, you're increasing the amount of oxygen in your body, and you're starting to get a lot of physiological changes. Now, the first thing that I noticed was that my body was really shaking. My hands were shaking, my feet were shaking, my legs were shaking. I felt really, really cold, even though I'd got out of the ice bath and warmed up at least a couple of hours before. Um, and then I started to hear like my breath was vibrating and echoing. Now, the only experience I can explain of this happening before is when I was starting to go into a psychedelic state on uh, magic mushrooms. And it's almost like you can hear your breathing, but it's a vibrating at a certain frequency. Pins and needles came up all over my body, and it was like I was really, really tense. And I could, with the breath, I could almost tell like um, I had to accept uh, that I was being tense, I had to accept it, and I was resisting a lot. And as I started to resist, I got a lot of atten- uh, tension or this kind of really tense feeling of, of anxiety in my, what felt like in my kidneys and all around my, my stomach area. Now, if I continue to, as I continue to breathe and focus on that, obviously you just go back to the breath whenever you're drifting away. You continue to breathe quite forcefully, and then what actually happens is a memories release. So those memories or those emotions are basically jammed into a part of our bodies. Now, for me, this was in the kidneys and the stomachs at the time, and there was a lot of resentment there, and I could just feel a lot of resentment, um, and a, a memory memories popped up from. Um, my teenage years actually and it was memories of being in school with my brother and my brother um, is a couple of years older than me um, Tom like, I absolutely love the guy to bits and I'll go through the experience of, of this whole thing because this whole cathartic process was actually about my relationship with my brother but we very rarely talk now for someone who was only born two years um, difference by the time we were 14 we were completely different individuals and we went our separate ways and we probably spoke when we saw each other and it was a bit of a, you know, that was about as much as it was. We argued more than we than we than we had, than we spoke that I can remember, um, 
uh, in the teenage years and when we went to the same school and it was almost like he was ashamed or embarrassed to speak to me in school and, just, and we never really spoke. And I feel like um, uh, I've always resented that. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of resentment when, that, when those images came up. And those, uh, that, that feeling kind of dissipated slowly and that emotion started, started to go, but my lips really tightened. And it was almost like as I was breathing, I couldn't, I couldn't relax my lips. And I was trying to focus on the breath. And then all of a sudden, it was like, you know, when you're angry and your lips tighten, it was like there was a lot of anger. And I was really, really angry at my brother. And it was like... Um, uh, I was just angry for all the times we'd fight, all the times that I felt like he'd bullied me as, as, as a younger individual, as a younger brother, times that we'd spent um, out with my, with my older cousins and stuff. And um, there was a lot of um, memories that of, of not f having that, not that, fe that feeling of not being good enough in comparison to him and that, having that competitive side and, and having him being the older individual, um, making me feel like I'm, I'm pushed down whenever, whenever we're around. And you know, there was, I'm not, and I'm not putting this on time at all. This is just the, the, the story that obviously that my brain's stored as, as memories because you've just suppressed these sort of things. You just put them by, you know, you just brothers, well, that, that happens, that's life. Um, anyway, after this anger, um, continued to, to breathe through it. And then all this kind of uh, these feelings or these emotions or this tension move then towards my towards into my heart and uh, there was music playing along and the music did also take you through a bit of this journey as well and um, as that happened my eyes just started to stream full of water and it was almost like I was just um, crying because of of the love bond between myself and my, and my, my brother Tom and uh, it was it was Quite an experience because as I was breathing, it's like I couldn't stop the, the couldn't just couldn't stop the, the tears flowing, um, and it was just like it was blissful, but it was also like a realization that even though there's all this resentment, there's this anger, is that you are still my brother Tom, and I still do love you, and that then made me laugh, and just these uh, tears of joy just kind of the uh, hands just flew up in the air, and this is all all unconscious. This is all that you can't control. This sort of stuff. You, all you're trying to do is just breathe and continue to breathe. And it's hard work. This was around about thirty five minutes, and um, then I was laughing. And at the end, it kind of uh, Brendan said, "Okay, now we're going to just m repeat this mantra over and over again." And he just said, "You know, the mantra is, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you, and I love you." And for me, that was um, taking me through those emotions. So the resentment, I was sorry for it. The anger, I figured out, please forgive me for it. The, the thank you for the love and the joy and the laughter was the love. So that whole experience, which goes from, um, I guess it's been playing on my mind. I missed my family over Christmas this year. It's the, I think it's the first year where we've really spent, uh, we've, not, we've not seen each other and I was involved with my partner's family's um, Christmas and uh, there was a lot of emotional eating chocolates and stuff like that and I was trying to figure out why and it was. It's because uh, you know, I, I missed my family this Christmas. So um, that, that was obviously something that needed to, to deal with. It, it, was, it was brought up, it's been brought up by uh, some guys that I go for breakfast with in terms of they were, you know, they've been querying me, trying to pull out truths out of me and they've said obviously there's still a lot of issues to do with, um, with your brother and your mom and there's still stuff that you need to talk about and, and there's still some healing to do. Now, this may sound to you if you're a listener, it may be like, oh God, what, what are you on about sort of thing? But 
everybody has it. It's just unconscious. It's suppressed into the shadow. And if you don't look within, you, you can't get past those limiting beliefs. And for me, removing these shackles, uh, it changes my personality. It makes me believe in myself more. It makes me that one bit better and that more confident uh, to go towards my vision. Because at the end of the day, I want big things. And I don't think you can do big things when you've got stuff weighing you down and shackles that are weighing you down. So thanks for listening to me. And thank you to Brendan for facilitating that uh, workshop. I uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, now I really want to get you on the show so we can have a conversation a bit more about your uh, your journey. You know, you've got a fantastic journey. Um, you've got a, you've been through a lot of stuff. You've learned a lot of lessons. You've got a lot to teach. You've got a lot to give. A lot of love to give. And I'd love to have a conversation about what you're doing. Anyway, so that's part one. Um, now we're gonna what we're gonna do for part two is is we're actually gonna discuss uh, a little bit about uh, altitude training and. Um, this was a bit of a request from uh, again from from Joe Paps. So Joe is an ex-serviceman, and uh, he asked me back in October. Oh no, he asked me probably about in February or March last year to if I wanted to climb Island Peak, which is a, a one of the a more difficult peaks on. Um, well, it's not more difficult. It's an easy peak, but it's not it's not base camp at Everest. It's the next one up. So it's actually climbing a peak where you've got to basically get up above five. Uh, five Five thousand meters, so it's going up to those extreme heights, and it was a you know, a twenty day trek in the in the Everest, and I and I agreed, and I was, we were going to go ahead and do it until we actually banned and mapped out, and it was going to work out about you know, ten to fifteen thousand dollars to to actually just go and do that tri- uh, trip, and I thought you know I'm I'm putting a lot of money into performance through health this year, and uh, I'd rather not uh, go spending money when I when put, spend spending money when I'm putting money into my business. Business comes first, and then if I can make that money again this year, or if I can map out to do that in a couple of years' time, then we'll do it. And also, I need a lot more training. Uh, my cardiovascular fitness needs to improve. He's he's ex uh, special uh, air forces, so he's a bit ex SAS. So I think he's probably a lot more fitter than I am. He's a few more few few years younger than I am as well. Anyway, um, yeah, he requested uh, to have a little bit of a talk about uh, altitude training. So. What I'm going to review is I'm going to review some work by uh, Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Now he is the director of sport at the Canadian uh, Canadian Sport Institute in the Pacific, um, and he is a guy who's done a lot of research on altitude or, or hypoxic training. So to first off, I'm actually going to define what uh, what high altitude is and what it actually means. Now, obviously, altitude is a, is a, an ascent. So when we typically think about altitude, we think about mountains, mountaineering, or uh, places that long distance marathons elite athletes go to train. Typically, high altitude is going to be anything above 2,400 meters. However, uh, you can start to get altitude uh, changes in the body from from lacking uh, of oxygen from anything above about 12 to 1,500 meters as well. So as we go up to around about 3,000 3, meters, is we actually get a 50% drop in what's called the parcel pressure of oxygen. So in uh, the at- at- atmospheric pressure, it's about 760 millimeters of mercury. Now, 21% of that pressure is dedicated to oxygen at sea level. Now, as you go at altitude, that partial pressure of oxygen actually reduces. Now, because that reduces, that then reduces the amount of ventilatory uh, or oxygen that we get within our lungs. Uh, the lungs, the, the oxygen in the air, uh, in, in the lungs and the alveoli is lower, so therefore we get a lower diffusion rate across into the blood. So we get a reduction in the amount of oxygen that's going to the blood and working muscles. 
So as that oxygen level drops, we that's called hypoxia or hypoxemia, or if that's actually happening in the you know, if oxygen levels are dropping in, 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 the bus, in the muscles. So what does this do to the body? Now, the acute effects of this, there's going to be hematological and non-hematological effects. And hematological ones essentially to do with the blood. And before I go to there, I'm actually just going to talk about what actually happens to the breath. Now, because oxygen levels drop, uh, the body then the carotid arteries within the within the body actually detects that, um, and that increases the respiratory rate. So we get what's called hyperventilation, just like we've talked about previously. Uh, unconsciously, we're breathing at a faster rate, so work of breathing is increased, and that's to make sure that we get a considerable amount of air into the into the into the lungs, into the small alveolus, air sacs. So we get a continuous flow of air because we've got a, a reduction in oxygen. We're trying to bring more oxygen in. Because of that, we actually get uh, an increase in perception of how hard work is because the sensory uh, reflex to breathing alone is, is, is quite a lot in terms of how we uh, perceive how hard or difficult exercise is. So the perception of exercise at high altitude, it feels a lot worse. Um, and initially within the first week or two, we start to get these changes in the body. Now, in terms of uh, hematological processes, so that means uh, processes or differences in the blood, is that we, after about two weeks, is the, the body starts to stimulate more uh, what's a hormone called erythropoietin or EPO. Now, if you have watched anything to do with Lance Armstrong or anything to do with Tour de France, that sort of cycling, EPO is one of the drugs that um, these cyclists uh, very regularly dope with, and they also do blood doping as well. So... What actually happens is we get an increase in the amount of blood, red blood cells, so our hemoglobin increases. Now, hemoglobin has four iron, um, uh, iron hemon groups, so iron is particularly, there's four of those per red blood cell, and they essentially carry uh, the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. So because we get increase in blood cells, a condition called polycythemia, we get an increase in our ability to actually deliver oxygen around and uh, around the body. And that's like this response of after two weeks when we acclimatize, that's what actually happens. And that's all promoted by the, 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 the bone marrow. In terms of non-hemological um, uh, changes, is that actually uh, within our... Uh, Within our muscles, we have small within the cells we have small parts called mitochondria. Now, mitochondria uh, are actually what uh, produce energy anaerobically. So, through anaerobic glycolysis, so breakdown of blood glucose um, down through a pathway to essentially produce oxygen. Um, uh, sorry, not to produce oxygen. It produces CO2 and also then produces uh, a molecule called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which I've discussed on the, the sleep podcast. And um, ATP is the universal energy molecule. So because at, uh, we get enhanced mitochondrial biogenesis, so we get more mitochondria, we have this increased capacity for aerobic exercise. However, because of that, because of... Um, uh, the increases in CO2 production from anaerobic exercise is that actually makes it more difficult to do anaerobic exercise uh, at 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 um, uh, at high, high altitude. Anyway, just going back to um, the breath. So carbon dioxide is obviously produced during this this phase. Now, because we're hyperventilating, we're getting an increase in CO2 production. We're hyperventilating already. That that pushes hyperventilation even further. That then causes a um, I guess a, 
an issue called respiratory alkalosis, where uh, hydrogen ions are basically re re dropped out of the body. We're, we're breathing out too much CO2. It's the pH of our blood actually increases, so it becomes a little bit alkaline. And then what actually happens, happens is the kidneys have to respond by that by increasing bicarbonate. Bicarbonate is what should we call an, a buffer. So it buffers acidic... Sorry. So what actually happens is we get this uh, bicarbonate that then breaks off into uh, by um, breaks off into uh, CO2, so water and and hydrogen ions. So we get an increase in hydrogen ions, which are called protons essentially, which makes the blood more acidic. So we're trying to balance that uh, that uh, that blood that pH blood pH essentially, and that goes continues to go up and down. Now this process also actually increases extracellular and intracellular muscular buffer, buffering. So we're the ability to remove that acidity in the blood and remove that lactate in the blood is actually increased. So once we've spent a bit of time up here, up, up altitude, and now this could be any between two and four weeks, we get uh, obviously changes in the breathing. Those changes actually will uh, we will acclimatize, and when the breathing starts to slow down again, that means that our body is then ready to go to the next steps. You'd never rush up the mountain because you can cause some real uh, bad damage, and you get uh, uh, altitude sickness. But anyway, you uh, we get these changes in the the hemoglobin, so we get mitochondrial increases. The and the red blood, red blood red blood red blood cells can increase by three to seven percent, um, and the actual hemoglobin mass increases, and it increases our uh, VO two max, which is our uh, which is around about four weeks at altitude, we increase our VO2 max, which is our, our um, oxygen uh, utilization capacity. And that's what we can actually measure in the, in the clinics, in the respiratory clinics when we're doing some exercise. And you may have seen it on my Instagram where I've had a, um, a Jackson Pios on there doing a, a treadmill test. That's what we're measuring VO2 max, which is the, the best indicator of aerobic capacity. So is there a bit of a difference between um, going natural or using a chamber so in chamber there is a bit of a difference obviously when we go up a, a mountain or if you were to go up a mountain we get a change in partial pressures uh, of oxygen and also we get a change in aerodynamics like air gets lighter so therefore actually resistance of air is actually less if you've ever seen a rugby game in south africa the south africans can kick pretty much any kick from like 60 meters out because there's the the uh, the air is so light that the ball just continues to go because the aerodynamics of the of, of the uh, the resistance, resistance of the ball flowing. Um, anyway, we uh, in the chamber. We don't do it. You don't do it the same way. So we used to have an, an altitude or an environment chamber at university, and we spent we do some research on that. But that's just increasing the amount of nitrogen so that you decrease the amount of oxygen per like as, as a percentage in total to reflect that of hypoxic conditions that are similar to altitude, but it doesn't have the the exact same effects effects on the body because because of the, uh, uh, the, the subtle differences. However, um, typically, uh, it would be suggested for individuals to probably train low and live high. However, there is some evidence coming out, which I'll go into, which I have gone into in a post that I posted today. Um, actually training at high altitude, doing um, you know, like some form of hit training or repeated sprint, sprint training. Training at that level, actually, uh, because of these and changes in the um, within within the body, and this increases in in uh, aerobic capacity. We training at a high intensity 
can actually induce changes in the, uh, the, the aerobic system, the, the anaerobic system that can then be taken back down to sea level. So therefore, if you're training out at high altitude for short bursts as fast as you can with some recovery, say 10 seconds, 10 seconds sprints on the bike with 20 seconds rest 10 times, the impact of doing that at high altitude compared to doing that at uh, sea level is greater than when you actually come back down to sea level. So the changes in the body that occur during that are, are more beneficial. However, for aerobic uh, or long distance or endurance training, not to say that you can't do that sort of training with endurance, you probably would towards um, you know your, your mid phase, your mid macro phase, you'd start put high intensity work in there to for to to, to, to improve your ability to, to to tolerate lactate and and basically um, that feeling you get in your heaviness in your legs. However, you, you're looking at more long long running uh, endurance running. You'd probably live high, so you're getting these changes in your erythropoietin, your bone marrow, your oxygen, and, and all those non-hematological ones as well as the ones within the muscular and the cells. You're getting those changes while you're living high. However, you would probably train low because the the perception of training uh, or that perceived effort of training is is such such much harder at high intensity, how, uh, high altitude, sorry. However, if you're uh, you know, an athlete or you're a professional athlete or you're in a survival situation, for example, you're still gonna be pushing yourself as, as hard However, the actual um, relative work that you'll be doing will be increased, and that will be increased because you actually get an increase in your resting metabolic rate. There's an increased um, uh, need for or demand for carbohydrate because of these changes within within the uh, uh, mitochondria, and actually, therefore, um, we, we, it's the body's working harder at, at higher altitudes, so it's better to get maximal uh, tra- training gains at low altitude, so you can still train as hard as you can. You, uh, you can go out all out hard, but then you're living at high and getting these these changes um, that occur in the body from acclimatization. So, what does this do for nutrition? Now, is there anything out there in terms of nutrition? Now, I've just mentioned that we get an increase in our MR, so our resting metabolic rate, but we also get an increased need for, um, for for carbohydrates. So there's actually an army uh, an army military research center. I think it's called Piles Peak, which is about three thousand meters, and that's where the majority of the research has come out of. Um, and this is a great research center that has looked at only a small studies, but it's looked at nutrition and it has said it suggested that if you live in a high or you're training at high altitude, that there is an increased demand for uh, energy expenditure. So you're probably going to increase your MMR by anywhere between 2 to 9%. So your calories that you're actually going to consume are probably going to be higher. And if you're working as hard as you can at that level as well, you're probably going to have to put about another 5% increase in your calories as well. Um, and most of these calories are going to want to become from carbohydrate sources. You're still going to want to have high protein because um, uh, we actually get a reduction in protein synthesis because you're most likely going to be in energy deficient state when you're, you're a high altitude. It's not like food is just available at the shops around the corner. You're in a bloody mountain, for God's sake. Um, but So because you're in this um, energy de- deficient state, you are going to need an, an increase in your, in, your, in your protein intake. So the main foods you're probably going to want to be consuming is is proteins and uh, carbohydrates. Now, also we because of uh, these changes that we get within our body. Now, when we're at high altitude, we get an increase in a hormone called uh, hepcidin. Hepcidin is, helps with the uh, with some of the changes that occur in the body. However, it does reduce the 
amount of um, iron that we can uptake in the in the gut. So absorption of iron actually reduces. Now iron's very important, as I've just discussed previously. Iron is a um, is 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 in control. In controlled, is utilized in, in many different things. You know, it's utilized in energy production. It, it it binds with the oxygen in the blood. It helps with cognitive performance and uh, and immune function. So it's pretty goddamn uh, important at high altitudes that we have this. So if we're moving into the work by uh, Pete Peely, uh, Dr. Pete Peely, who is actually at the uh, University of Western Australia, uh, he, he's done a lot of research on, on considerations uh, of, iron, of iron at, um, at, at high altitudes. Now, the first thing you want to be doing if you aren't aware that you are going to go to high altitudes is you're probably going to want to get your, your serum ferritin checked to see whether you are in a depleted state or whether you're in a, uh, you know, your state is pretty normal. But if we're going to go through classifications of what iron is uh, or iron deficiency is, is this the first classification basically means that you're depleted in iron. So you might be starting to show uh, uh, symptoms of fatigue, lethargy. Um, and this typically means that your hemoglobin is okay, but you're, you're continuously using the iron stores up. So if you were to get your, your blood tested, um, uh, you know, fasted at a, after a standard diet without, uh, with, with, with a couple of days rested from exercise, if your iron levels were on the borderline of being low, it might mean that you deplete these when you start exercising or going up high altitude. So in that situation, you're probably just going to start making some changes to your diet. Um, typically two very good foods that you can consume for iron is going to be liver uh, and and also clams as well liver and clams are probably two of the, the and red meat so grass-fed uh, steaks are also very high in, in iron and uh, there's there's different types of iron there's uh, I think there's, I think it's just non-heme and heme iron and some of them we get for you know, heme iron we get from uh, lots of plants, so green, dark leafy greens and spinach and things like that. They're, they're quite high in uh, in lentils, uh, broccoli, seeds. They're all foods that um, are high in iron. But then, sorry, your heme iron, which comes from your red meat, your clams, and your liver. So, if you were going to pack and go away uh, mountaineering, uh, I would probably pack up a shitload of frozen frozen liver and clams, and uh, probably try and cook those up and, and, and get those into a feed. So. Why do we need the, the the iron? Well, obviously, I've already said in a low energy state, we're actually going to get a, an increase um, in, in inflammatory markers, and that's actually going to reduce uh, uh, increases hepcidin, which is actually going to reduce the iron in the gut. So, and having just the recommended daily allowance is probably not going to be enough for an individual who's who's going to be an athlete or maybe competing at high high altitude. So, for someone who is in an iron depleted state, we're probably just going to make food changes first. Now, if, if, if serum ferritin is actually low and there's actually starting to be changes in the hemoglobin, that means we're going to get changes in, in the uh, reductions in, there's a reduction in bone marrow production of iron. And that is, is pretty serious. Now, so in this situation, you're probably actually going to start looking at um, uh, supplementing with, with a, a, something like a ferrous sulfate. Now, if you were to, to supplement, you obviously you always want to go food first uh, in, in any situation. However, if you're on a mountain, you, you might not be able to. So if you're in that state of um, iron deficiency or iron depletion, then you probably can get ferrous sulfate uh, tablets. And but although you want to take these, start taking these are roughly between four and twelve weeks prior to to going up at altitude, anywhere between sixty and two hundred milligrams, depending on how severe your um, uh, 
uh, your your iron de- uh, depletion or iron deficiency is. But also, uh, if you're con- if you're getting continuous measurements, so I'd probably start. I'd probably get a, a blood test first, and then start taking taking just around about sixty to one hundred milligrams, and after about two or three weeks, checking whether it's increasing. If it's not increasing, push yourself up to maybe one hundred and fifty to two hundred milligrams, and continue to do that for uh, the next twelve weeks, um, and. And another another thing with with iron as well is that actually increasing the amount of vitamin C that you're consuming can help absorb iron. So uh, having an iron supplement and a, and a vitamin C supplement at the same time, or consuming foods high in vitamin C whilst you're uh, consuming iron, that's also great. And that's why clams are, uh, are such a good food for iron because they actually increase the absorption of the iron through the gut as well. Now, if you're uh, iron deficient, which basically means you're anemic. If you're anemic, then you're most likely going to want to have a look at uh, iron replacement through an infusion. So that is something that you do with a doctor. It's something that's a uh, uh, pretty um, um, you, you pretty much know if you're iron uh, deficient because you'd just be struggling to get out of bed. Uh, you'd be uh, very lethargic. You'd you, you'd be having issues sleeping even though you're feeling really tired. Uh, but that is something that I would take up with uh, with a physician. And if you're an athlete, I'd probably go and even have a have a blood test, and then maybe try and find someone who specialises in that area as well. So anyway, that is the uh, last bit of the episode nine of the Performance Health Podcast. I'll go back and check performance. Uh, sorry, episode eight if you haven't listened to that one already. Um, check me out on Instagram, Martin McPhillamy. That's M C P H I L I M E Y. And as always, I would really appreciate if you. Uh, know, provide some feedback go on to apple podcasts click on the, the ratings put a, put a comment on there it really helps me develop and grow this and it's something that i'm passionate about and really enjoy so thanks for listening um, next time we should have hopefully um i'm gonna get brendan on if not then uh, we will uh, probably actually we're probably gonna review some practical advice for athletes and uh exercises that are vegan or plant-based so again once again thanks for listening to the show take it easy and uh, peace out